and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 273 and part one of my conversation with Fayetteville State University in North Carolina, percussion and music professor, Quentin Millette. First up, some news. Grades are finally in. I'm excited to be academically done with this semester. Felt like a long slog at times, but I'm ready to get a nice restart and a slight bit of a break upcoming. More about the end of the semester to come next week. And one other bit of log rolling. An article I wrote for the Percussive Arts Society and their Health and Wellness Committee that is related to my work with the podcast and some of the guests I've had on the show came out on Monday. This is an article that talks about what folks do outside of the world of percussion to make their lives whole. And I'm really excited about it. It's at the Rhythm Scene blog for the Percussive Arts Society, and I'll post the link to it in the show notes. But let's get right to today's guest, Quentin Millette. Quentin and I met virtually for this interview, and we had a blast. I got in touch with him because he was, like all of my most recent guests, presenting at the 2021 PASIC in Indianapolis. We did get to meet and chat in person while there, which was awesome. And I did get to catch the primary part of his presentation at PASIC on diversity, elocutionary items, and the ways that we emphasize different types of percussion playing over others. As you'll be able to hear throughout this interview, Quinton's put a lot of thought and done a lot of research to support his presentation, which went well and was enjoyable. Quinton's been working at Fayetteville State University, the HBCU in North Carolina, for about four years or so. He teaches percussion, along with various other classes in theory and history, which is a relatively typical multi-hat job that is frequently done at small music programs. He's also been active as a performer throughout and has had a lot of wonderful schooling. We discuss these items and more. As has been the case, we went long on a number of topics. So this week, we'll get to Quentin's research, his various jobs, growing up in eastern North Carolina, his baseball and football background, and his undergrad work both at East Carolina University and Howard University, the historically black college in Washington, D.C. And next week, we'll get to the rest. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on November 2nd, 2021, and it begins right now. So, Quentin, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC and when you're presenting. And I'm presenting a, a research paper, um, which is being tailored for the format um, a little bit. And the basis of it is born out of this idea of students not being ready for certain spaces. Um, I've wanted to, you know, give clinics at schools and they say, oh, I don't have any students that are ready for that. Um, and I've always kind of looked slightly odd, like, what do you mean? Like, I can teach you anything. <laughs> you know, what do you, you know? Um, and so 
Um, that kind of coupled with this idea of kind of a double existence for percussion, right? We, we have percussion within classical spaces, and then we also have percussion in, you know, vernacular spaces, as just jazz and folk music and, and different global styles. Yep. And the issues of diversity and inclusion that they face are very different. Um, but holistically, if we look at percussion, it's quite diverse. And, and so I began to wonder, like, why does diversity and inclusion within classical spaces matter? So what I'm actually arguing and kind of what I'm asking in terms of my research question is why is diversity and inclusion within classical spaces so difficult and why is it important, um, especially when we look at this broader field of percussion being quite diverse. And so in my dis dissertation, I began to dabble with this idea of elocutionary force um, as a concept for kind of understanding the viability of performers analysis, because there's this this, you know, study of performance studies where, you know, people are talking about, you know, existing performances. And there's some stuff that's kind of quite disparaging for us that, you know, identify as performers. I'm like, you know, hey, our observations matter too. You know, maybe they're not all highfalutin, but you know, they're, they're important to us at least. And they make a difference in how we see performance. And so I began to dabble with that concept there. And I also came across the concept of ecological systems theory by Ruffenbrenner, um, which talks about kind of the spheres of influence. And so what my paper is actually going to be talking about is how that relates to um, how we perceive performance aptitude in percussion. You know, are these assessments truly evaluating what we think of as performance aptitude? And as we develop diverse spaces, um, are we also diversifying what we see as performance aptitude? And so within this paper, I propose a model for performance aptitude, not necessarily as an existing entity within an individual, um, but more as a process that it has a system that involves, you know, whatever their perceived musical knowledge is, um, that then is input into different aspects of practice, things that might be slightly more theoretical, um, things that might be based more along listening, and then how they input that into their personal practice, and then how that practice comes out with some sort of reading or interpretation of the piece, and then there's a feedback loop between those two things, and then those go back and inform their musical knowledge, which then informs this whole process. And, you know, the ability to be able to go through that process um, is what I argue is performance aptitude. Um, and so where this kind of matters and where I think the discussion is important for percussion and, and what I kind of propose in this paper is that if we change what we view as musical aptitude, um, then we can be more inclusive with which students can be successful in that process. Um, so if musical aptitude is no longer just, can you play this scale at this tempo or even do you know this scale? Um, can you play this rudiment on command? Um, if it's more inclusive to, yeah, those things are important. They're foundational for understanding, you know, motives and ideas and reading music and developing things. And they save a lot of time. But we've probably also had students who, in one way or another, excel at that aspect of it. But when it comes to playing a phrase, really struggle. Um, and so by implying that, that that skill attainment in the traditional musicology somehow is going to denote a higher musical aptitude than, say, someone who is a church drummer you know, who does not know a scale, who could not play a rudiment on command, yet their musical aptitude is extremely high with what they can do with a phrase, with what they can do with the rudiments that they're playing that they don't even know are rudiments, right? Um, and so if we can be more inclusive for what are those skills, what are those things that they're doing that are important? Um, and how can we also include that into our assessment and, and how we view someone as ready for a certain space, whether that's um, an honor band, whether that's an undergraduate institution, um, you know, different things that are actually going to lead to them being really excited about music. In a nutshell, that's kind of what my, my paper is going to talk about.
Okay, so uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's like the coffee is is still like it's still processing. That was, I mean, that was amazing. But I was sitting, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many concepts to to, to try to <laughs> keep up with. So, so that that was awesome. I, I I'm, now I need to like, okay, let's let's uh let's talk about this because this this was this was amazing. Kind of the way that you've set this up. So give me a little bit of sense of the ways into this particular topic because clearly it seems like you kind of stumbled on something and then as you kept researching you it okay it kept opening up different ways in right that that you may you may not have even thought of originally tell me a little bit about the process of of seeing this kind of as a as a whole absolutely and that's a wonderful question because it really is like this, all of a sudden, this system of like, hey, wait, that connects with this and this connects with this. And the foundational thing that I want to talk about um, related to your question is the idea of illocutionary force. And this was something that like I had no awareness of, um, but it's kind of drawn from speech act theory by this philosopher, J.L. Austin. And the idea is the level of impact that we perceive our speech is going to be accepted as valid, right? So if I stand up here and, and you know, I'm I'm speaking confidently and I'm saying words that seem to work together and make sense. I have a reasonable um, degree of ability in thinking that you're going to believe what I'm saying and not be like, let me Google that real quick. Um, And so like, there's a fairly strong amount of elocutionary force there. Um, But if I, you know, take it to like, say I'm cooking a soup for dinner for my family and my son says, ew, that soup is disgusting. Um, and my wife says, you know, that soup is disgusting. They don't have the same level of elocutionary force, right? I view my son like, oh gosh, he's just complaining, right? My wife says that I'm like, oh my gosh, I substituted sugar for salt, right? Like, right. like <laughs> there's some sort of major issue there. Yeah. Um, and so that's like, I think at a, at a foundational level, like that's kind of the underlying push that kind of led me to look into this because there are different levels of acceptance. We do view you know, one level of musical skill attainment very differently than the other. And kind of why is that? And so the next thing that I came about was trying to find like the words to explain this. Almost like this pit in my stomach that felt like, you know, I, you know, in the past with the pandemic, we began to notice um, diversity and inclusion becoming a buzzword. And we're seeing a lot of solutions. Oddly enough, this paper was actually proposed pre-pandemic. Um, <laughs> so it kind of worked out that it actually be, began pushed back. But I wanted to find these, these words for really expressing why it, it didn't quite fit that just giving additional recess resources or just giving you know applied lessons to someone doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to come out on the end of this with lasting diversity and inclusion. Right. Um, you know, at some level, we actually have to broaden what it means to be a musician and what it means to make music. And what I love about this idea of diversity is, you know, it instantly kind of puts us in this frame of mind of, you know, racial diversity or gender diversity. Um, but really, it's just about ideas. You know, I think we could look at, you know, marching versus concert percussion and see that sometimes those spheres don't always talk to each other and they don't always understand and appreciate that we're all doing same sides of the same thing. And yet within the academy, you know, concert percussion has a stronger elocutionary force, you know, when it goes about doing things than, than the marching side of the world. And, and that shouldn't be the case. Well, right? and you know, that doesn't even yeah. get into the um, core style versus show style. Right. HBCU, right. PWI <laughs> splits on those kinds of things too. 
Absolutely. And so that's kind of what what I what I liked about this topic is like this is a way in, but it is a much broader issue that we can talk about a lot of the kind of segments of percussion and kind of eventually bring them in as a, a larger research umbrella of kind of like ways to go. Um, and so that's when I stumbled upon the ecological systems theory. And um, it sounds really fancy and it's it's not really that fancy. Like most things that we talk about, it's really not that fancy. It's just, like, it's just a word that all of a sudden gives us, you know, the vocabulary for discussing these things. And, um, and the idea is that there's four interconnected systems and one kind of floating system. Um, so the micros, you have the individual, like you, you or my, myself, um, in the center and the entities that we interact with are our microsystems. So like, um, as a student, my music educators, my family, um, I played baseball. So my baseball coach, um, I went to church. And so my, my church community, all of those things are going to be a part of my microsystem, my friends outside of music, my friends inside of music. Um, the meso system is going to be how those communities speak to each other and how they communicate and how they interact. Um, so, you know, for example, if I'm trying to practice on the weekends and none of my friends are musicians, that communication, that relationship is very heavily going to influence how I see practice as a part of what I do and who I am. Um, and the next kind of level of the system is the exosystem. And this is all of those spaces that directly affect the individual that that individual is not actually involved in. As the student, like your the relationship your band director has at home or has with their principal is directly going to influence you, but you are not involved in that space. You don't actually really realize that it's going on. You know, yeah. you're just like, why are they in a really bad mood today? Yeah, um, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then lastly, we kind of have this macro system effect, right? Or influence. And, and that's the larger governing bodies that are going to have an influence on kind of how we create change and how we do things. Um, and so we could think of like the PAS 40 rudiments is, is a macro system influence on all of us, because here's this gigantic body of, you know, percussion um, force that's saying, hey, these foundational skills are really important and you're going to see them in your playing um, and so you should really pay attention to them. And so that has a trickle down effect. Like we all are going to be impacted by that. Um, and the last one is, is the chronosystem effect, which actually, like I said, this was proposed pre-pandemic. And then like, I didn't really get chronosystem until the pandemic. And that's the effect of, of, of events over time. So like all of a sudden the influence of like the pandemic completely changed how we teach percussion, how we learn percussion and, and what that is like. And it's just this moment in time, you know, and yes, it could have a lasting effect, but that moment in time is going to really differentiate for what it means to study percussion, um, at least during that, that time period. So that's kind of how I came about it. Um, it really was all grounded in this idea of, you know, force and elocutionary force, like how the viability of different things in different spaces and then coming across this theory and realizing, okay, here's a vocabulary that actually allows me to talk about this in a way that it kind of makes sense and, and to ex express that to others. Cause I, I was thinking of one of the, uh, what was the, the macro system mm -hmm. I was thinking, cause that's also can be like state government that gives money to universities that then spend it on marching bands, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm only brushing the surface when I'm asking these questions, but like at what point were you like, Oh, it's, it's like, I have to learn 
you know about like like public speaking entities and philosophy and like all these things that I hadn't planned on maybe researching. Absolutely. Um, and it's one of those things. Well, I, you know, my wife is also, we were in graduate school together. And um, so, you know, we often have, you know, talks about different things and we explore things together and we're, I'll, I'll say we're, we're chronic Googlers, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, she'll say, oh yeah, you know, gray is actually, you know, this kind of a color. And I'm like, oh yeah, really? You like, while I'm like typing it into Google, like just to see like, all right, what can I say about gray? You know, what is this? How does this make sense? And so, um, you know, with that, I'll say product condition, you know, like it's just, I've, you know, I come across, I'm like, well, I actually wonder like, is this the case? Like, and, you know, several hours later after falling into this rabbit hole, I'm like, oh, wow, like this is a thing, you know? Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of how the process, I guess, works on my end. One thing that that you know you kind of struck upon is that is the ways that we that we have systems that are built that have supported the weight of the you know of, of the concert player, for instance, uh, who reads music, having this this one level, this higher level, and then we're discounting, as you said, the church drummer, who okay maybe they don't read music, and then there's just this decision that they don't have the same level but what their but what their skill is is maybe being a much better listener and a much better improviser um and actually have the ability to retain a billion songs and song styles in their head is <laughs> a different skill set and we're not yes. giving that the same credence right exactly no and that's that's exactly it and part of one of the aha moments that I had that came into this, I had a student um, audition for the program at Fable State and they didn't read any music, but they had fantastic hands. Yeah. And I did a little social experiment with them. You know, I was like, all right, so I'm going to sing this rhythm to them. Mm-hmm. And it was this exercise that I got from, you know, the Kuhn snare drum book, which kind of goes from very simple to very complex rhythms. Yeah. And, and so I said, all right, here's our beat, you know, and I established the beat and then I sang this rhythm and I said, all right, play that back to me. And they played it back to me. And I said, all right, I want you to play it back to me while looking at this music. And so they did. Um, and then, you know, I had them, I sang another rhythm, you know, a subdivision of that. And, and I had them, you know, look at that. I was like, all right, so just play it back to me. I just want you to look at this while you do it. Um, and then I was like, all right, so now I want you to play the measure below that, which was you know, kind of use both rhythms, you know, because it's one of those books. And they did. And it was like, you know, it wasn't me. Like, I didn't do this. Like, the student had it there. They just needed the confidence to know that they had it in there. Yeah. And it was like, Oh my gosh, like this is not, you know, like you said, they are different skills and they're not necessarily, you know, they're not against each other. They, right. they all work together, like, you know, <laughs> towards this, this total musical aptitude, you know, we're not, we're not at odds at all. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's amazing thing. I, I wish I'd kind of, I, I, I had thought of that, of, of making that progression. Um, I, I would do sometimes with when, when I had, when I was teaching um, some students privately and I would have, I would do kind of a similar thing with um, if we taught stuff by rote, like on a snare line and, and then I would have them like try to write it out, you know, it w- after giving some like kind of theor- some theoretical feedback and it was, they kind of got it, but I think your, but I was like that your method is actually makes more sense. Um, 
I stole it from, you know, the, uh, the inner game of tennis, you know, that's oh, nice. Yeah. Right. You know, like, yeah. you know it's, it's like allow them to see this in practice. Like don't focus on the reading, you know? <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. All right. I'm, yeah. I will be taking notes as I, as I edit later on. <laughs> this is going to be amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, Another thing that I thought was that that among the many things you said that that I thought I really kind of I, I latched onto was this idea that um and and that the and it's like within the IDE realm where where it may be see trying to see something as trying to be solved when it's not that's not really the the thing it's not as if we go oh we fixed it and IDE is done. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so I, like on that element, I, I'm curious, is that was that always kind of wrapped in this particular idea you were presenting or did that was that added more so because, again, as you said, uh, like pandemic and, and how that's come up more often? Yeah, that that's kind of evolved with with the pandemic, you know, and and. I've actually been quite, you know, excited to see there's been a lot of groups coming up, you know, really trying to influence the amount of resources available um, to these underrepresented voices in percussion. Yeah. And that's wonderful. Um, but it only affects this very small part of the system, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it really just has kind of a micro system effect. Um, perhaps, you know, it, it has a bit of a macro system effect as we try to start to create big policy that is like being inclusive, but it has no exosystem effect, right? Like in terms of like, what are we doing to support the voices kind of in the middle um, that are also where their instructors are involved? Like how are we in giving them empowering and listening to their concerns and kind of dealing with how they approach things? How are we dealing with the families of these students, right? You know, how are we dealing with you know, giving them support for their friend spaces where this may be very counter to how they identify. Um, if we look at, you know, the broad swath of gender, you may be in a place where no one else is identifying in the way that you do. And they're also not in the same activities. And so we're all human, right? And so that kind of draws you away from this space, no matter what sort of tangible resources you have, that's so sort of intellectual resources and support aren't there to be like, it's okay. You know, here's, you can do this, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is definitely something that's kind of evolved through the pandemic. It's like, well, I actually have to include this piece um, because this is why it's not, it's not enough. It's not like a, Hey, we're solved. Right. Um, and likewise, it's, it's something that has to constantly be tended towards. Um, I, I wrote this, uh, article for notes and, and in there, I, I talk about, you know, the idea of this kind of goes off on, on a bit of a tangent, but like the, the hegemony of the marimba and, you know, uh, the canons of, of music and kind of like pushing for this canon. And really, you know, one of the things I mentioned in there that I think is important is that there could be a point potentially where we get so into, you know, like trying to fix the problem that we've countered the balance, Right. And so we also have to tend to it to make sure that we don't tip the balance so much that, you know, we have this space, but now, you know, this one group that used to feel represented feels completely abandoned. Um, and that means like, that is the entity of diversity and inclusion, like is tending to the process to make sure that it's equitable, um, no matter how it leans. 
that, you know, people do feel welcome, that they do feel like their voice is heard and that their experiences are valid. I, I think of this in terms of when it's like, okay, we have a lot of, uh, I'll think of this in, in terms of gender, but it's like, well, we have a lot of, maybe we do have, there's a lot of um, female identifying people who are in, who who might be in some of the marching you know, the pageantry arts and DCI and stuff like that in, in some leadership positions, but not necessarily uh, caption heads or leading the entire group, but they might be relegated to like a subsection of a brass. And that's as far up as they may get, you know, and, and so that's not, yeah. it's like, that's, it's like getting them in is one aspect, but making sure that they also get up, you know, get to the highest levels and can start filtering down is also is another part of this, you know? Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Racially too. I mean, that's, yeah, that's of course. it's the same kind of idea. I, exactly. I think that is exactly it. And one of the things, like you said, I think, you know, one of the things I, I, I have, I struggle with, as you probably can tell already is, you know, um, fine tuning ideas to very specific entities, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a very global thinker. One of the issues that I, I kind of got to for like, you know, why, why, why does it matter? This representation, you know, in, in classical spaces is, is also because there's a certain illocutionary force for art music versus vernacular music. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the policy that affects education, a lot of those decisions are made by individuals in art music, right? The academy is heavily influenced by art music. Yeah. And so in, in that space, you know, if we don't have people who are in places to make decisions within this genre, even though like it has, you know, less popularity, it has probably less income producing ability, but yeah. it has the decision-making ability. And, it's, and you mentioned that, like getting people in a, in a place where they are, are visible and they're making policy is important for inclusion because that's where the trickle down is going to happen for how we, you know, establish how we talk about things, how we deal with things, how we approach education, how we approach performance aptitude, you know? Yeah, completely. Wow. Sometimes and one of the ways, I don't know if you, if, if you, you're running into this, but one of the ways that that I think shows up is trying to get more pop music or vernacular music, which is the better term for that, uh, as, as you stated, vernacular, but getting more of that in the curriculum and just, and, 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 and then the, 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 the comeback is, well, what are you taking out? I was like, well, I, we, but we, we have to put some of this in. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yes, yes. And yes. And like, I, I hear that argument all the time. And number one, like it's valid. I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, to me, I, I, I go to like the orchestras, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I hear an argument like, all right, you know, if you want me to stop teaching Beethoven nine, like, how am I going to prepare, prepare them for these orchestral auditions? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea is orchestras don't have Beethoven nine because they're planning on scheduling Beethoven nine that season. Right. It's yeah. Beethoven nine is about, can you play sensitively in an ensemble? Right. You know, can you blend, can you score study? Can you understand the role of this instrument and, and change your touch to fit that? Right. And Beethoven 9 does that so beautifully within a very short amount of time. Yeah. But the piece is, it's never about Beethoven 9. It's always about what is the skill that they're trying to show by choosing Beethoven 9. 
Right. And so by in, in diversifying our repertoire, we're not saying no to Beethoven. We're not saying no to taking out these things. Right. We're saying yes to the skills that these things outline, you know, and yeah. it's like, yeah, oh, we're not taking out anything. We're just, we're just enhancing this story and we're involving, Hey, you know what? We can also learn form from popular forms, right? We can also, you know, learn a lot about ear training from using, you know, popular music. We can <laughs> like, we're not taking anything out. We're just broadening the scope to more reflect the world that these students are going into. And we're not going to think so narrowly about our established art music that it is about this piece. It's not about the piece, you know, because it's about what this piece shows. It's about the skill attainment. Like that, that feedback about, about that particular piece, though, is, is also it's also a reflection of that person who's teaching it just like. Laziness, like let's be honest, like that's what this is. <laughs> like, because I've taught, because I, my teacher taught Beethoven nine, and I got to teach Beethoven nine. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. If if you teach soft snare drumming, and you know, like, say you take like all your rudimental solos and you play them at pianissimo, yeah, yeah, you're gonna be able to play Kijay and Sherazad, right? Yes, right. You know, <laughs> yes. It's, it's not about the excerpt. It's about the techniques, you know? Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> <laughs> kind of relatedly, and I, this sounded like one of the first things that you mentioned, because one thing that, that, that also has come up with the, with IDE elements, particularly as it relates to the classical side is that Sphinx organization. And there are others color of, of music and, and some others where, they are specifically dedicated to creating like the next generation of specifically African-American and, or just underrepresented groups. And then, so that's kind of one element. And then there's the element of trying to get those individuals into major orchestras who may not see the IDE issue as all that important. <laughs> And I'm curious if you've thought about that or have kind of dealt with some of the um, the ways that those two things interact with each other. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's it's a it's a struggle, I think, because I don't necessarily know that it's always the orchestra's issue. Mm -hmm. um, but I think on some level it has to be the orchestra's issue um, and not from like, you know, hey, this is great to have, you know, um, diverse voices and diverse ideas in this space, it's more like, it's great because this reflects the people that you're trying to get to come. This reflects your audience, Yes, you know, and you know, like, Hey, if you want people to feel like this is a space where I can spend my money, you need to make it a space where they can spend their money, you know? <laughs> and so like, you know, I think that's, it's an uphill battle, definitely trying to, trying to, influence those spaces and say, Hey, like, this isn't really just like a, you know, a, a kumbaya issue. You know, this is actually an issue of like dollars and cents that matters to you. It yep. matters for the longevity of music. And, you know, for this generation that is being bred to consume short form content, right? Things we have, you know, Instagram stories, and we've got you know, YouTube shorts and TikTok, mm -hmm. and they're so influential. There's so much content going on there. And if we are still trying to, you know, really push this canon of, hey, this is so great. This has been happening for hundreds of years. Yet someone's life is like, I don't know things that happened yesterday. 
everything is today. Yeah. Like, you know, we also have to realize that like by changing these spaces, we're also kind of adapting to the times. Like we're saying, Hey, these times are changing. So are we like, here's our repertoire. Here's where we can actually, uh, in a sense, commodify off of just like being good people. Like, you know, Hey, I can be, you know, a good person and have a great space and also like make money. And these things can all work together. And, and I don't think they have to be exclusive. Um, you know, not that I feel like money is a driving factor for me, but you know, it has to be at some point, like we, you know, we have families and they have families and they have investments and, and like, I get it. So I think to kind of get back to that point, just a little bit, I think having, having those organizations is so important um, for definitely helping with at least that, that microsystem level yeah. of, of influence. Um, and then, you know, I think it will take, you know, conversations like the one we're having now and, and many more conversations in the future for like, why this is important for larger organizations that don't see that it's important um, because it's not about diversity. You know, it's about longevity. It's about reflecting your clientele. Um, so anyway, those are, those are my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, that's, that, that's tremendous. And it, it, it all, it, it seems to boil down to that. This is uh, constantly a, uh, it, it is constantly an uh, evolving work in progress that is never going to end. <laughs> and if you realize that, then, okay, maybe we can, it's like, maybe we can, we can get somewhere. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? I know it does, <laughs> but that's how that, that's you. That's how that goes. <laughs> the, the, the one thing I, I, that I did occur to me though, I was again, one other thought was just about how, you know, particularly if we're again, this is focusing on the orchestra side, but like if we know full pretty well that that orchestras have like major orchestras, I'll say the kind of the the ones that are full time. I think they're um, the people who are playing in them has it's kind of lingered like in the two percent range that has been African American mm -hmm. um, since the seventies. <laughs> like it's not gone. It's it's somehow not gone up. Um, but it's also has not gone up. And I know I think about the people who are in those spaces who are like asked, like if there's anything that even like you say half of the word diversity divert. And then it's like, Oh, I, I, I guess I'm going to have to be the person who has <laughs> to be the diversity in this situation. And it's like all the stress where you put on that musician to have to represent. It's just, it just, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. And and it really kind of hits at the idea of, you know, tokenism, like, you know, right. you can't have just one in the space, because then it feels far too representative. And I think, you know, if, you know, we have like this, you know, 20-60-20 principle, you know, where 20 is always one side, 20 is never, and 60 is kind of flexible, yeah. you know, we know we probably need, you know, more than one, because that person, you know, what if they happen to be on like, you know, the side of 20 that's like, yeah, no matter what happens, I'm going to be in there, right. or the other side, like, what, no matter what you do, like, it's never going to happen for me, yeah. or I'm never going to be willing to put in the work, and that all of a sudden becomes reflective of, you know, 100% of the population in that space, or even 50% of the population in that space and and that starts to be like well well maybe you know maybe this isn't an issue maybe it's just you know yeah you're 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 spot on like when there's one person or very two percent of the people in that space it puts a lot of pressure not only on that person but i think also on the larger field 
Um, yep. You know, it's harder to question a lone entity because you're so happy to see this lone entity and you want to promote that entity and be like, yes, we're so glad you're in that space. Um, and then it feels like, well, if I'm overly critical, then I'm actually cutting down like the entire existence of that space there. Um, so like, for example, like say someone, you know, really thinks that, you know, the ideas that I'm promoting are just total rubbish. There's a lot of pressure for them not to say that, you know, as a, as a scholar of color, like people want to see me in the space. They're like, well, I'll just kind of say, all right, they're interesting <laughs> ideas. You might think you're a bit nuts. Right. You know, and like, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, we need enough so that, you know, people can call me nuts and not feel like they're being like they're cutting down an entire, you know, race of scholars. Right. Yes. Um, you know, and that that's also a piece of it. Like we want enough people there for there to be variety for people to have, you know, tastes and flavors and be like, all right, cool. I kind of like this. Don't really like that. And yeah. then not to say something more than just, I don't like this or I don't like that. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Quentin, tell me about your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. Absolutely. So I am the... Percussion instructor at Fayetteville State University. Um, so I teach applied lessons. I teach percussion ensemble. Um, I am also teach some core music classes. So I teach music theory one and two, and I teach music history one and two. Um, at some semesters, depending, I might teach you know class percussion. I might also teach um, African American music. Kind of goes off between me and another colleague. Um, and then I also have this role as kind of the music area coordinator. So I help. Um, you know, do uh, logistic things like for, for the area, as well as like our seminar class, which is kind of, you know, organizing, you know, guest speakers to come in, um, having the students do their performance, that kind of thing. Um, so those, all those kind of entities are, are my, my duties there. Uh, just that though. I mean, it's really yeah, just that. Just barely, that. <laughs> barely anything. <laughs> are you teaching choir or, or no? <laughs> I haven't asked you to do that yet. <laughs> no, no, no choir. We've, we've got a we've got a great person there, uh, Denise, nice. Doctor Denise Payton. She's she's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you don't want me near your choir. I, <laughs> I spent a little time when my daughter was young as the yeah. music director for a, a musical theater group, mm -hmm. and you know that was definitely most of my time was spent you know, like in the stacks of the library at the University of Georgia, like looking up, like all right how do I warm up a choir? You know, what is, what is this thing here? I don't know. You yeah, know, yeah. It's like, you know, drastic study. And then I have to go up in front and be like, all right, we're going to learn this thing here, you know? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so yeah, definitely, definitely don't want me in front of your choir. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of extra work on my <laughs> trying to figure out what to say and, and how to communicate it effectively. Right. <laughs> now are the alto players, are the alto singers better? Can they play paradiddles better than the sopranos or is it, which who's, who did you figure out? Strictly pedophiles, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> now, how long have you been at Fayetteville State? So this is actually my fourth year at Fayetteville State. So tell me about getting the position and were, were you uh, finishing up your doctorate before then? Yeah, so before then, um, I actually finished, I, I left residency at the University of Georgia in 2016. My wife got a position at East Carolina University. Mm -hmm. um, and so we moved up here and actually finished my dissertation that, that last year. Um, during that time, you know, I spent some time as an admin for uh, the athletic bands at East Carolina University, which was great. Um, and then I also spent some time adjuncting. And then I spent about a year adjuncting before I started at the at Baylor State University. 
Um, and that I spent at uh, Bennett College in Greensboro and mm-hmm. um, Barton College in Wilson, uh, Wilson Community College uh, and University of Mount Olive. Um, so kind of going back and trying to, you know, create this career by like teaching everywhere and lots of driving. <laughs> lots of driving. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I did my um, I did my undergrad at Wake Forest and my grad degrees at UNC Greensboro. So I know that area. Oh, yeah. Relatively yeah. well. Although I will say I've barely been to Fayetteville, um, which I've been told I've been told by various entities like whether I've missed out. Um, <laughs> I mean, you would probably be speak more highly of it, um, or you may not. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know I, I have to say, like I, I love. So I actually started playing in the Fable Symphony when I was still in Georgia. So that's like okay. started like the massive drive. Actually, I didn't start the massive driving. Um, but so I was coming up to Fable before then. And I definitely had a perception of Fable uh, that was probably not too dissonant with, with the one that you hold. And um, I, I, I began teaching there. And I actually don't live in Fable now. I still live in Greenville and I commute in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really cool culture. Like it's a really cool town. Like there's a lot of pride and a lot of... Uh, a lot of like military involvement and it's really like, you know, Fayetteville State's an HBCU, but like depending on like where you walk on campus, you wouldn't realize it Um, because we have, you know, so many different students from many different backgrounds. And, um, and I think it's just, it's a really great, great place to work. Like I love the students. I don't always love their practice habits, but like, I love the students, like as, as individuals, like they're so great. Um, And especially a lot of them as first generation college students. Like, it's like, you know, like I see what you're up against, like, and I'm, I'm, I'm on your team. Like, this is so great to like, see you striving. Um, you know, I'd like to see you, like I said, strive towards the practice room a little more often, but like just your general overall striving is, is so empowering and, and it's really great. So um, I will throw that in. I think the city of Fayetteville is, is a great city to work in. Um Although if you get it in quick spurts, you can't always see the greatness. You know, sometimes you just see like these areas that are, are less than savory. Yeah. How, how far away is Greenville from Fayetteville? It's about an hour and 45 minutes. Okay. Um, so I like to say like two hours with a stop because I can't drive for two hours. Like I just can't do it. I, I need to stop in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to make that stop, you know, much more of like a gas station and water stop, but sometimes sure. it does turn into like donut stop. So it's a little bit of a commute, but it's, it's fun. So how, how, how many days are you there every day? No, no, no. Three to four days. So, um, like some of my classes are Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and, um, some Thursdays on up coming down faculty meetings, things like that, or, um, other, other things like that. So you're driving the two hours each way ish. Yeah. Yeah. All those days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of audiobooks, like oh I bet of, you know it's <laughs> a lot of podcasts probably yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of just like and uh, when my my father in law comes to town he's he's really into football and we don't mm-hmm. always have a, a lot to talk about and so sure. I always make sure I catch my sport podcast you know for that week so I at least have like six <laughs> hours of localized knowledge and yeah you know he walks in the door and I'm like hey let's talk about football like right. what do you think about this and this and this you know? yeah yeah. <laughs> And he's like, oh, I'm so proud of my son-in-law. You know, right. he knows it too. And I'm like, yes, yes. you, you did it. You yeah. did it again. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awesome. So what, what is the kind of the size of the music program there and also the faculty size to kind of take care of this program? 
So the faculty size is actually fairly small. Um, we, we have some adjunct faculty, um, but a lot of them are actually functioning as generalists, even if they're specialists in their own field. So like we mm -hmm. have one woodwind person that teaches all of the woodwind applies, even though they actually have a degree in, in, in multiple woodwind studies um, from University of Greensboro. Mm -hmm. uh, but like they're having to carry that broad load. We have, right. you know, a brass faculty member that's carrying the broad brass load. And so we've got five full-time faculty and then I think five adjunct faculty. Um, but, you know, that kind of leaves, you know, there's a lot of classes in a music curriculum. Um, yeah. Our student population took a big hit with the pandemic. Um, yeah. So now we're down to around 30 students, but it's not the biggest, not the biggest program. Sure. Um, but, but it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, kind of another issue when, when dealing with kind of, you know, equity in spaces, um, you know, looking at, you know, what it, what it costs, you know, to when you teaching a lot of core music classes and you're, you know, an, uh, an applied instructor and, you know, you go to a conference, um, it has a huge impact on the entire program. Like, you know, when I'm going to PASIC, like it affects a lot of classes and a lot of people. Um, whereas, you know, if I'm just the percussion instructor, like it affects, you know, this group, you know, and kind of in a, in a broader way, you know, looking at the balance of the different types of classes required kind of as a generalist, um, you know, it, it makes it really difficult to, to do things like research and to be, to be active because you're carrying such a broad load. Yeah. And it's even less likely that you're going to like say, all right, I'm going to push to do this thing over here. or I'm going to push to do this recording project because like the institution is not asking for it. Right. You know, like I'm not in a tenure track position. I'm, I'm a lecturer, you know, and so like my research requirement is zero. Um, right. So if I go to them and say like, hey, I'm not able to do any research or, or you know, performance, they're like, that's okay. That's not your job. Your job right. is to go over there and teach them a point. I, I need to do things so that my students will be inspired and they'll see like, this is possible, these things and get excited about music. Um, you know, that worksheet in music theory really isn't that exciting, you know, and um, so kind of doing these things, um, that's kind of the bigger issue that I see kind of you know, facing a lot of not just HBCUs, but uh, small liberal arts colleges. Like I said, I was at the University of Mount Olives in a very similar situation. You know, you have a few faculty members that are carrying a very, very broad load and it makes it just that much harder to do anything outside of those responsibilities. I've been in programs like that. So I 100% yeah, yeah. <laughs> hear you. Um, and it's not, it's not only that, it's, it's also that, those positions, and I mean, you mentioned it when you said lecturer, that that's not a professor level position. <laughs> that's that's lower than that in terms of um, you know your ability to get promoted and to kind of do what you need to do to kind of make your own ends meet. Frankly, exactly. Um, it's also it also means that people who are in those positions are constantly looking for other things for their career. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you know, if anyone at Fable State is listening, I'm very happy. So right, right. No, no, that's not right. Uh, but, we're, not, we're not making that point. <laughs> yes. uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you. I think it, it definitely creates this environment that's transient. Inherently, it has to be. And then you think about all right, student buy-in is not created by transient faculty. You know, it's created by those faculty that that are that are there that they can like, okay, this person has my back, they understand my journey, they can push me a little bit, and I can actually understand and appreciate that push because this is someone who's in it with me. 
Um, when you have faculty that, you know, don't have that stability of the university saying, hey, I'm willing to keep you around long term. Um, you know, I believe that much in you as a scholar. You know, if you don't have that, then you're automatically going to have an open door of students because they don't have that buy in. Right. They're not like, oh, yeah, this person, you know, is is here and they're doing all sorts of great stuff. And, you know, I came here to see this person um, because that person, like you said, almost always has to kind of keep an eye on like what other opportunities are there that can provide more stability for me. And the other part of that is you can't even let's say you were to get you know, like you were to look and you find an offer. It's it's not like the that school that you're at currently has the resources to to match you know, they'd be like, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, that's not, but I like it here. It's like, I know. <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's so true. And when you were first started working at Faithful State, what was the first, were, were you coming in to do percussion and then the other things kind of needed to be covered? Does that sort of what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came in to teach uh, applied percussion and percussion ensemble. And like, yeah, that was like, that was my job description. And I was like, okay, this is just a great job. You know, I get yeah. to, you know, do these things. And um, as I began to go in, um, you know, I, I won't say that they were real. I'll say they, they were perceived grimaces of, of load on my colleagues. And I'm like, wait, this person is like teaching eight classes. And this person is teaching 10 classes. And at the time, like I had one student and I'm like, okay, like I've got to do more. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not, this is not okay. And so, um, you know, eventually, you know, once, once you start saying yes and you get a reputation for yes, you know, people are like, oh, that's so great. Why don't you take on these things and these things and these things? And it's like, yeah, okay, 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 that's enough. All right. Um, (laughs) But, you know, that's how it kind of evolved into this, this idea of, you know, being collegial, um, and recognizing role strain, you know, and it's like, well, hey, like this is not. I know this is wasn't initially on my job description, but I believe in you as a colleague, and like I can't, I can't do that to you. Um, right. And because we're a small space, like it, it happened to work out that way. That can't work out that way in all spaces. But sure, I think you know, the number one job skill is to just like care about people and to just like, you know, realize that we're all human and that, you know, by helping someone else, it's like not taking away something from me. Like, it's just like creating a space where we can both be successful. And I think in turn, it's kind of offered me a little more job security. I've got a few more students now, but you know, if, if I were, you know, the stubborn one that, you know, was just like, I'm just going to grow my percussion studio in the silo and, you know, you all can do whatever you do. Um, there's definitely a lot less job security with that mentality, you know, if that's not what the position is, if that's not what the infrastructure is set up to do. So, yeah, that's kind of how it evolved it. You know, I started out, my position was just percussion. Um, but as more needs needed to be met, you know, I, I was really kind of eager and willing to kind of approach those, those needs. Yeah. And your mentality is is right on in terms of not just caring, but, but also proving that you um, are competent like and and people will see that and be like, let's give that person more things to do because they will clearly be able to to make it happen somehow. <laughs> Whether it's yes. through uh, six hundred or seven hundred audiobooks a week, however however it happens, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> and a sports podcast when when need be. <laughs> yes, definitely when when need be. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I'm just finishing uh, Anna Karenina right now, which is like you know twenty plus hours. Of, of course, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like you know heart wrenching heartbreak. It's like you know you know that Russian literature is like it always ends in like you know someone's dying and everything right. you know goes down and and so like I'm listening like you know palms are sweaty. I'm like. Yeah. I know it's coming. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Something about a train. Hey, 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 hey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It turns out, as you as you've realized, that those novels are not just end depressed. They they're just they're pretty much depressing, like for the whole time. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's that's hilarious. Was Don Parker the predecessor? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, he was. And um, I actually met Don in the section because he plays in the Fable Symphony or played in the Fable Symphony before his, his current position. And um, I was still a student and, you know, I went up and, and auditioned and, and got the spot. And, you know, I met him kind of day one. And he's like, you know, are you a student of Tim Adams? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, and he goes off to tell me the story about like how they met and, um, and it was, it was just so great. Cause he's got like this warm personality. He's hilarious. Um, and he's just such a wonderful person. And so, you know, when the opportunity came to be like, okay, you know, I could actually, you know, be in, be in this space and kind of continue that tradition. I was like, I'm, I'm all in, I want, I want this opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. It's really, really kind of great and an honor to, to follow in his footsteps and, and we still kind of keep touch and, and talk about things. And it's really, really, really great, great, great human. 30? I mean, he had been at Fayetteville State for a long time, right? Long time. Yeah. Long, long time in a variety of roles. I mean, I think he started out as the percussion professor and I know he taught taught some theory courses and he was the assistant chair and the area chair for, because we have a department of performing and fine arts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is, which is kind of cool too. Um, so he was like kind of really, really heavily steeped in the university and, and his absence you know, it was definitely missed. He's such a such a big footprint. And Faithful State have a marching band. We do. We okay. do have a marching band. I have very little to do with it, unfortunately. Um, okay. It just didn't. It wasn't part of of my job description. It just has never quite worked out for me to be involved. But you know, I know a lot of the students, and it's it's great. Those that are in concert band actually come over right now, and, and they have kind of a, a percussion class with me once a week. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't do much with the marching band, but they're great. They're, they, they really are great. Um, and it's, you know, it's that, that show style, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at like, you know, these people can play, you know, and, and groove, but like, like, yeah, they can play like this. They got hands. Yeah. They got some hands, you know, (laughs) this is, this is great. And and they've got some, some feet. They're dancing, man. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, uh, My first semester when the marching band was practicing inside, like now COVID, they don't, they don't practice here. Like they practice in our performing arts center and outside, but Mm -hmm. you know, pre COVID, you know, I would sit there and I'm like, you know, you know, playing through some Bach and I've got, you know, the latest top 40, you know, blasting mm-hmm. in the room next to me. I'm like, this is the perfect metronome. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. You're getting that like real big two yeah. and four with the, um, as they're holding the snare with the left. That, that's yeah. right. You know, uh, Shagadoom, you know, like, yes, that's like right. yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so does, does the, does the marching band have it kind of its own staff then that does that? 
Yeah. Yeah. So they have their own staff to kind of bring in for that, which is, which is great. Their percussion person just like, you know, COVID's kind of messed everything up a little bit. So um, right now they don't have a percussion person over that staff, but scheduling wise, I I just can't pick it up right now. Oh, sure. Um, Which is, which is sad. Like I I really do not like that piece, but um, I I like my kids more. I guess I'll say that. Like I've got to to get back and they need to know who dad is. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, they usually have their own staff there. Yeah. Any marching situation is tends to be a brutal schedule, but I know that like HBCUs, it's worse. <laughs> it's usually longer, basically. It is brutal. Yeah. It is brutal. Um, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I gotcha. So let's back up. So where did you, Quentin, where'd you grow up? Actually grew up in Greenville, North Carolina, which is where Oh, I did you? Now. So really, really kind of weird circle of events. Um, um, so I ended up growing up here and I went to undergraduate uh, initially at East Carolina University, studied with John Wacker, mm-hmm. um, which was really kind of cool because it wasn't actually until I left there that I missed, you know, the novelty of him being John Wacker and me being, you know, Quentin Mallette, which most people say Quentin Mallet, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have this guy with the last name Wacker, this guy with the last name Mallet, and like we're and I'm like studying with him, like this is like this yeah, is yeah. great. Well, you can't write that, like it's so perfect. Um, um, and then after the fact, like I've gotten like how amazing this is. But yeah. um, so I studied with him for for a spell, and then I actually went up to Howard in Washington D.C. Oh, okay. Um, to finish my my undergrad, and I studied with Bill Richards, who played the Kennedy Center Opera, and like like brilliant guy. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of my journey. I ended up going down to the university of Georgia and studying with Tim Adams. Um, and then my wife got a job at East Carolina, which is kind of like, we met here and it just kind of happened. They had a position open up and, mm-hmm. um, she's actually, you know, in human development, she's like a brilliant person. Right. Um, and so like, you know, the job opened up there for her. And so like, all right, we're moving there. And then I got a job in Fayetteville. So then I'm going down there, but like, you're already living here and my parents are down the road. My kids can walk to their house or they can skip holding a basket of, you know, of pastries, you know, down, you know, like that ever happens. No, but, um, you know, they could, it exists like they could, you know, in an ideal world where the birds are whistling. Right. Um, This could happen. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) You just got to find the right basket though. It's, it's all about. You know, definitely. Yeah. It can't be just plastic. It's got to, it's got to have some, some wicker and like yeah. some overlays and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, we have far too many speed bumps for that though. I just envision my kids, you know, skipping and then stumbling over the speed bump and then it becomes really messy. Um, so, you know, just add that into the picture. It'll be great. Of course. Yes, road construction is never a part of these stories <laughs> as much as it should be. <laughs> Do you have any family members in the arts? Um, so not directly. Um, my my mother played violin in high school. Um, my father played the boombox, um, <laughs> and my sister played clarinet in high school. So I guess that there's that connection there. But um, professionally, there's there's no one in my immediate family that that did throughout my childhood. But I can say this, my best friend in high school, his dad was the area jazz band director. And so there was always that connection. Like, you know, he was always very, very serious about drums and still like one of the best drummers I know. So like, there was always like, there was always music happening in their house and I would always go hang out and, you know, and so that, that was also like an extended family. 
um, with a very like very clear musical vision. And they're all like, they're all brilliant. I'm just like, man, I'm just trying to find B flat, you know, which yeah, right. is like what it's saying. It's like, oh, I'm trying to find B flat. Yeah. And that's kind of become a mantra of mine. Like, yeah, yeah, I am still trying to find and you know, sometimes it's a sharper, you know, right. but no, I'll, I'll get there eventually. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little too close to a 442. Exactly. Yeah. So when does the percussion bug hit you? It actually hits me, um, really hits me my senior year in high school. I, mm. I played football up until my junior year and I had a minor injury mm. and ended up leaving football and all of my friends were in the marching band. So, you know, they were like, oh yeah, just come to the marching band. I'm like, I don't read music. I don't know any of this stuff. Uh, they're like, okay, we'll just put you on bass drum. I'm like, Okay. Um, so I did that and it was fine. Like, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed hanging with my friends, but then senior year, um, I had, I needed a space in my schedule and I was mm-hmm. like, well, I'll join the band. Like, that'll be fun. Um, and the band director, like, was like, you're a nice guy. You know what? I'll just put you in the class with your, with your friends. And they were like in, you know, the top band, like they were in our wind ensemble. I'm like, mm-hmm. realizing like, I don't know how to read music. Um, and he simply put me in there and, you know, the person that I am, I'm like, all right, I've got to figure this out. You know, so I'm like trying to read everything. I'm trying to learn all this stuff. You know, at that point in time, Vic Firth had just started putting uh, videos up of, you know, players. And that's when I discovered the marimba mm-hmm. and like Gifford Howard's videos. And I thought that was like the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard, mm-hmm. um, you know, was him playing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is perfect because my best friend is a brilliant drummer and I will never be as good as him but he doesn't play the marimba. So like, there's an end, like I could actually like explore this thing here and not be competitive with him whatsoever. Yeah. I know there's a lot of great marimbas, but um, you know, I think uh, that was kind of, kind of when I got the percussion bug was in high school. And, you know, I'd go in before school, I'd stay after school. Um, I, you know, we'd play on basketballs when we were, you know, listening to music, like just constantly playing. And I go off to college and still not, music right you know i'm interested in other areas and trying to figure out kind of what i wanted to do i knew i wanted to teach a little bit but i wasn't quite sure where but all of my free time was spent in the music building yeah um and because my friend's dad was the jazz band director he put me in like the lower level jazz band he's like yeah why don't you go in there and you know play you know congas or something Mm -hmm. i'm like okay well i'll figure that out too so i'm checking out records and like you know trying to figure out like how to play congas and um and so i'm doing all this and realize i'm like i'm not doing well in my other classes because all of my free time is spent in the music building like i even pledged five you alpha like you know like Mm -hmm. i'm like totally in the music world but my major was not music um, and finally one semester, uh, Dr. Wacker looks at me and he's like, you know, do you actually want to figure out what you're doing? And I was like, yeah, I would actually like love this. He's like, well, I've got a slot open in the spring. He's like, if you come in here, you could take this and we'll let that be, we'll let your jury be your audition. And I was like, yes, like that's it. And so that to me, like, that is like the beginning that, that moment where it really kind of, it started that senior year in high school, but then it was that semester when he was like, you know what, I've got the room in my schedule. Why don't you take an applied? Let's see how you do. Um, and like, I'd never looked back. It was like, it was the opportunity that I needed. Um, and without it, I would probably be making, you know, more money in a different field, uh, <laughs> but I would be less happy. So. Sure. That's, that's, that's a crazy story. And it's, I mean, to, to get, come to it so late is, is, is awesome. I mean, it just like still proves that like you could still can make it happen whenever, yeah. 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 It, it always, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, sometimes I still feel like, you know what, 
I bet a real percussionist that didn't start their senior year in high school would not have messed that rhythm up, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I try to tamp down that voice as much as possible. <laughs> sure. And <laughs> now, um, so what did you, what was your position football wise? Um, so I was, uh, I was a place kicker. Okay. Um, awesome. And I also was like the 17th string defensive back. And right before I got injured, I was like the third string quarterback because I'd played baseball for a while and I had a, a decent arm, but mm. um, never saw any game time in that capacity. But, but I did as a place kicker um, where my moment of fame here is, you know, envision. So it's like, it's fall mm -hmm. and, you know, just dusk and, you know, this is junior varsity football. So, you know, everyone is very serious. And yeah, of course. You know, I'm stepping up and I do the kickoff and it's actually a great kickoff. You know, it goes, you know, towards the end zone, not in the end zone because I didn't have the best leg. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I look up and I see stars and their linebacker had targeted me on the kickoff, you know, because apparently I looked like a threat, like I was going to tackle someone. Uh -huh. And my coach took me to the side and I grabbed my helmet. He's like, all right, Quentin we got to teach you some swim moves. And so he's like, all right, so, you know, if it comes at you again, you know, you just, you know, just, just swim over him. So the next kickoff, like I see this guy and I look at him and he looks at me and he's like, you know, this is going to happen again. <laughs> and so, you know, like, I'm right. I got to focus on the kick. So I do the kick and he comes at me and then I give him the swim move. Right. And then he goes flying past me, but then he comes chasing me again. So like, there's like two plays happening. There's like the guy returning the kick and right. there's like the kicker trying to escape the linebacker. He's trying to <laughs> flat me. It's hilarious. Um, anyway, like that's probably like, that's, that's my claim to fame in football. So needless to say, like I didn't have much of a career in that, in that sphere. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a fascinating, I, you don't see, they don't show that part. No, uh, on no. the TV, uh, you know, in the kickoffs, they're always focusing on the guy running the ball, which clearly that's not the most important thing. Not the most, you know, in the rule, you know, you're supposed to like run off towards the sideline, you know, and yeah. all this stuff, you know, I didn't get that. Uh, but you know, now, now I know how to do a pretty mean swim move, which is really <laughs> advantageous when, you know, my cat wants to get fed and it comes, you know, leaping at me. I can yes. just kind of, you know, dart to the side and like, of course. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> Right. But then the cat can like, can actually put the claws on you and yes. uh, just hold on for dear life. And yeah. Oh, like, definitely. Less definitely. Fun. A whole lot less fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, the baseball, what was your, what, what was your position there? Um, so I was an outfielder. Uh, right field okay. was where I ended up most. Um, and I, I loved baseball. Mm -hmm. um, and Greenville actually has quite a, like a baseball community. We have a couple of teams that have made it to, Little League World Series, mm. and uh, so it was, it was great. I mean, it was a lot of highly, highly competitive. Um, one of my closer friends on on actually my uh, prep team, um, which was kind of like right after Little League, yeah, uh, ended up playing in the NFL. So like, there's like this incredible mm. amount of like talent around there, and um, I, I loved right field. The stories aren't nearly as interesting. I think there was maybe something about you know a daffodil or a dandelion <laughs> or something that I picked one time, um, but. <laughs> You know, it's, yeah, I definitely loved baseball. I, right field is definitely uh, not the, is not shortstop. No. no. <laughs> Nor is it center field, actually, frankly. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> what was your, can you give me your scouting report on, on you as a hitter? 
Oh, so as a hitter, I, I hit a couple of home runs, but I was always kind of like in the, in the two hundreds. Like I, you know, I was, I was a decent hitter. I was probably good for a single occasionally. Um, as a pitcher, I threw a two hitter once. Um, uh, but you know, I was, you know, wildly erratic, you know, I had good strikes and I had really bad balls. So you know, the coach is kind of like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to use you in selective situations. Um, so. <laughs> right field it is. <laughs> right field it is. <laughs> you know, when you are at East Carolina and you're starting to study with Wacker, mm-hmm. um, okay, so you're, you come at this late. So what's, what, how, what's kind of the progression of you starting to, learn more about percussion as an entire field. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I think he did really, really well um, is he focused on sight reading mm-hmm. um, and we played some snare drum, but we didn't play a whole lot of snare drum. Um, and he was very big on the Cerrone Sonata book. I don't know if you ever played out of that book. Um, but not, no, not that's Cerrone. Um, so it's a bunch of, you know, transcriptions of, of violin sonatas. Right. Okay. Um, and you know, that for me was incredible because I happened, I was going to the library and checking out recordings and one day it hit me and this shouldn't have been an aha moment. Right. But it was, and I was like, wait, if these are violin sonatas, that means violinists have played these. I can listen to a recording of this and maybe like try to sound like that, you mm-hmm. know? And so I got this, in fact, I had, I had just gotten uh, an iPod. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it felt like a small iPod. Actually, it wasn't a small iPod because I, I don't think they were around yet, but I just gotten one and I downloaded on iTunes this, you know, recording of, you know, this guy named Itzhak Perlman. I'm like, I don't know who this is, but I'm going to mm-hmm. listen to it. And it was like, wow, he like put a, he like put a fermata here and he, you know, did a cellarondo here and it, his interpretation just baffled me. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to play this sonata with him. Like, so I got put on the record and I started playing and I tried to play exactly as he played. And so when we went and performed this in studio class, mm-hmm. like, you know, I was playing this, you know, Itzhak Perlman's interpretation. And to me, like, I was like, oh my gosh, these things can actually be fun. Like, you know, like you can actually like put a piece of yourself in it. Um, and that moment for me, like that changed, like how I approached looking at music and performing music and going through that process of like, all right, so here are the notes, but I actually want to do this whole Itzhak Perlman thing to it. Like I want to somehow bring this out and make it my own. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was like, that was part of the process for me. Um, the other thing that he harped on was sight reading and he was very big on like, all right, so there's one rule, you know, don't look down. Right. And, and I was like, okay, you know, and he's a little bit old school, so I won't quite go into all of it, but you know, if you look down, needless to say, you were restarting very shortly. And, and so like, eventually it hit that, like, I've got to keep my eyes up and I've got to do this and use my peripheral vision. And like, for me that helped because then learning music didn't quite take as long. There wasn't as much up and down because I could read through it at very slow tempos. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was able to get through a lot of repertoire and it just, like I said, I mean, I was coming to it so late that. I was very excited about percussion, probably in a way that a sixth grader was excited about it. Like, oh, everything is new, except for it was a much bigger pond. And I was like, oh, my gosh, everything is new. And this is all amazing, you know? Yeah. Um, So that's that's a lot of kind of how that worked. Um, We played through the Sonata book. We played through a little bit of snare drum. And then we did a lot of sight reading. Mm -hmm. 
I guess because you were so it was all so new, were you just like keep it coming, keep it coming? Like you, you even though it, it, that is a lot, it sounds like you were just like I'm ready to take all this information in. Yeah, yeah, and, and actually, I had forgotten about this, but so the very first semester we had ensemble auditions, mm-hmm. um, and the ensemble auditions for freshmen weren't the same as the upperclassmen. Mm-hmm. So they had to play these orchestral excerpts, but we just actually had to play a scale and I think some prepared piece or something like that. Yeah. Um, so the prepared piece, you know, it wasn't so bad, um, but the scale was A-flat major and I was super nervous. And so like, I just played it like super fast. Uh-huh. And I just happened to not miss notes, but it wasn't like me. Like, you know, like I said, I'd had that one semester of applied. I yeah. knew my A-flat major scale. I could play it fairly confidently, but I was so nervous that I just flew on the instrument and I got placed in the top band. And so needless to say, like, I'm still like trying to figure out this stuff. Like, um, you know, I tell my students now, I'm like, you know, that first semester in music school, I learned in music theory that scales and key signatures correlated. Yeah. Right. Because like, if, if, if the accidental wasn't in the music, I wasn't playing it. Like I didn't, right. that. you know, like it just happened to be there are a lot of courtesies, you know. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, that first semester, it was, it was super intense because like I didn't know a whole lot. And so I felt like I had to learn a lot because these people were playing like this was their you know, their wind ensemble. And so it was kind of, you know, trial by fire. So I had, you know, his lessons and I like wanted to know more, but I also wanted to know more because like, I didn't want to be the problem in wind ensemble. Yeah, of um, course. And so like, <laughs> it was, yeah, that's, that, that is exactly the environment. Like, yeah, keep it coming. Keep it, I need some more. <laughs> but you said that you don't stay there. I don't. I initially hadn't planned on going to East Carolina University. I, I planned on going to another institution Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe I got cold feet and, and I just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to stay at home for a couple of years, but Greenville also was home. Yeah. And part of that college, you just want to experiment with your identity a little more. Of course. And I, I had been so fortunate. I had played in most of the major ensembles that the university had to offer. Mm-hmm. Like I had accompanied the top choir. I'd played with the new music group. I'd played with, you know, the various top on uh, instrumental ensembles. I'd played in the Afro and Dian ensemble. I'd played in both jazz bands. I'd played in the combos. And it was like, okay, so like, I know what this has to offer, but I also know what Greenville has to offer. Cause I've lived there my entire life. Yeah. I want to go somewhere else. I had made a promise after two years at ECU, I was going to experience, you know, what it was like to transfer. And I spent more time at ECU than that, but it was two years in the music program. And my best friend was at Howard. And I was like, you know what, let me go to Howard. It was late. So like, I wouldn't have made like any of the auditions at other schools. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was like, you know what, I can, you know, I can make a call up to Howard and see if they'll, they'll take my audition. And they did. They were like, yeah, yeah, come up and do an audition. And, um, and I did, and they accepted me and it was, unbelievable because you hop on the metro and you could see you could be at the kennedy center or you could be at u street and check out you know jazz musicians and like i learned the technique of being a musician i think at east carolina but i learned the art at howard you know seeing my colleagues who you know were 17 18 19 and they were playing like the way they were playing jazz was like they owned it and it was another one of those light bulb moments that I felt like probably shouldn't have been a light bulb moment, but mm-hmm. was like, oh, wait, like, I can't wait to adopt my persona as a performer. I have to practice it now. Like, I actually have to, like, act like, you know, I have to act like these people that I look up to and, like, I have to play music in that way, in that genuine way. And so yeah. um, when I was at Howard, I also took uh, some private lessons with Janice Potter. 
Um, oh yeah. Which was extremely wonderful. She was so kind and so gracious. Um, and so I would drive, actually my cousin would drive me down to her house and, and, and I, and I studied with her for, for actually about, about, about two years, which was phenomenal. So like I, you know, I had the Howard experience and, and everything that was great there. I had the DC experience. And then I also had that study with her and really, really was so, so rewarding. And, it's always a weird transfer because I feel like, you know, people are like, oh yeah, I spent two years at this, you know, rather unknown entity. And then I went to this entity with more resources. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> I went from this entity that had pretty solid resources, you know, to an HBCU, which is notorious for not having quite as much resources. Although, you know, Howard's um, a great school and, you know, has a decent amount of resources, but it is kind of an interesting shift. Um, but that was kind of my thought process behind it was like, I'm not just getting Howard, I'm getting DC. And I don't know what that is like that. That'll be such a valuable experience. And I mean, you haven't even mentioned the the cultural experience of being at Howard, which is yeah. on a different level. Yeah. And many yeah. places in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it, it was so deep. We, we talked about, you know, tokenism and like being able to, you know, be selective in spaces. You can be selective, you know, not only is DC like chocolate city, like it is, it is like Howard is like uh, the Mecca. Like, you right. know, there are people that are coming from all sorts of places and they're gravitating to this. And you've got some people that are like, you know, fifth generation, you know, super on it, intellectually firing on all cylinders. And yeah. then you have some first generation students and it's all this melting pot of like, all right, we're in this together. You know, we're, we're right. at this institution and we're all striving, you know, all undergraduates are also advocates, you know, for just about everything, you know, like, yeah, yeah. the pizza should be free in the calf and not $1, you know, right. like, you know, like whatever it is, like we're on it and we're, we're going at it. So that's like so great to be in that space where you see so many people that reflect you and they share your passions. Yeah. Uh, that visibility was, was just in, just incredible, incredible. No, that's, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I think the kind of the key thing to me was just that it's, it's known as this cultural like idea. <laughs> and, and so the hope, I guess, as is just that that's what ends up being your experience. Like that, that, that actually becomes reality for you, which it sounds like it did. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was, it was incredible. I mean, just in the, in, in the music building, like there's so much history. Mm -hmm. um, so many great players have, have gone through those halls. And so, you know, it felt like you were also kind of a part of that, Yeah, you know, that tradition and, you know, which is why sometimes I have a hard time relating to my students because they're like, you know, the music building closes too early, you know, it closes at eight. And I'm like, oh, okay. We would just, you know, our music building closed at like six or something like that. So you just were, make sure you were in, you know, with some snacks and, and, and yeah. your instruments by five 30. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Right. You know, <laughs> Maybe, maybe around six, you know, when the, when the security might be making sure the building is empty, you know, just quiet for a little bit, yeah, yeah. you know, and then you're there like, and they can't kick you out. Like you're there till like, you know, midnight, however long you want to be there. Right. Um, you know, and I'm like, so it wasn't an issue for us because of, you know, that there, and there were also like, you know, our teachers would tell us about, you know, the other people that did that. And so it was kind of like, yeah. all right, great. There's this tradition of like, we are going to get at this music by any means necessary. Yeah. Um, and so that was also, also just very, very awesome. Um, yeah. I loved Howard. I, you, I mean, you're, you're making, what you're making me think of is, is the door, the one door that never locked in my, in the music <laughs> building when I was an undergrad and we knew which door it was and it was never locked and I could get into that building and I was in there till like two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what? Tell me a little bit more about the Howard the Howard Music Resources when you're there. Um, so we had one percussion practice room, which was also kind of like the studio room. So that's where the timpani is. It's where a snare drum is. Yeah. Um, it's where we fortunately had a five octave marimba there. Um, and so we had, everything was in that room, percussion ensembles in that room. We would all practice together in that room. Yeah. Um, which was so great. You know, it wasn't a big room. Um, but what was so great about it is you had to focus. So like if I was working on a piece and someone else was working on their snare drum repertoire, they weren't necessarily going to stop for my piece. Right. You know? And so it was like, all right, I have to be really, really focused and know how to put on the blinders when around me, like chaos is happening, you know? And so like, that was, it was really, really great to have that. Um, but there were also like these two halls of practice rooms. One of them had like a broken set of vibes that, you know, you could use to kind of work through some stuff. And we would actually carry drums in there sometimes to like practice snare drum on the pad or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but they were also those to practice, you know, kind of piano and ear training. Um, so there were decent practice facilities, which were, which were nice, but in terms of like percussion, like we really had that one room, which is about kind of the size of the room I'm in now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which is not, not, not terribly big, but it wasn't, wasn't too small. And it, it actually worked out really nicely. You said your primary teacher there was Bill Richards. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bill, Bill Richards, uh, William Richards. He's, he does like first call sub with Kennedy Center Opera. He plays with the Verge ensemble. Um, we got to play together with him one time, which was really cool. Kind of a contemporary music ensemble in DC. Um, which was great, you know, because that's, that's like, that's my scene. Like, you know, I, I, I love things that are, that are creative and aren't, aren't what they seem on the outside. You know, you can kind of delve into this music and it can reflect your life experience. And, um, so it was really kind of cool to study with him and get some opportunities to play together and, yeah. um, really, really great. I also can't talk about my DC experience without, um, there was a, uh, I guess a consortium agreement of the institutions there. And so Catholic university um, allowed me to audition for their orchestra. Mm. Um, and so I actually got to go and play with them for, I think, I think I played with them for a year, maybe a year and a half, um, which was also great because then like you have the ensemble full of folks that are striving. Right. Um, and Catholic had an agreement with some of the military bands in the area where it was, I don't know if it was inexpensive or they had a lot of military brass players there. Yeah. And so I was playing, you know, timpani in this ensemble and the brass section was awesome. Like they were always like all the way in there. Yeah. yeah. And so like you learn like how to play with an orchestra because these are like professional brass players, you know? Yeah. And, you know, if you're messing up, they'll look at you and be like, hey, man, what's going on? Like, you know, right. <laughs> we don't do that here. You, you, <laughs> you, you, you dealt with that on, on your practice time. <laughs> and so it was it was so awesome. I think it's just, you know, so many things came together in that space that were that were just great. Um, yeah. And also, I, I I also associate that with Howard because you know they allowed me to do that as an ensemble credit, and so mm -hmm. that was really great. What were some of the the lit that you ended up getting to play at Howard? At Howard, I ended up playing uh, what did I? What was my first remember? So rhythm song, um, mm -hmm. I played that there. I played uh, Pius Cheng's Etude in E Minor and mm -hmm. uh, Musical Moment. Yeah, I played Seita. I played, uh, I didn't do a whole lot of a multi. I did uh, Listoir, uh, Love of Listoir, not, not actual Listoir, but still love to play yeah. that one. Ah, what's Toftans, um, which is kind of a multi paid by Kapetsky. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did, oh, I did um, the Partita in D minor. 
Oh yeah. Uh, you know, so that was, that was a lot of fun to kind of get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in ensembles, you know, we did, you know, standard kind of, you know, grade, grade five ish, you know, um, wind ensemble fair. Yeah. Um, we did do a transcription of Colas, which was like oh. last to do with wind band. I don't know if you've, you've done that one before. Did you, did you, were you covering the mallet part? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess you wouldn't have bring it up if, if you weren't covering it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a great one. I, look, I had a perfect example of like the mallet part calls for requisite skills and mm-hmm. flexibility. Um, yeah. I hadn't studied any orchestral lit. I played, I played the part, you know, and yeah. um, similarly in, in uh, oh, this is hilarious. Um, also a tangent, uh, but back to Catholic University, my very first rehearsal, they're like, um, so our clarinetist is playing this clarinet concerto. She was also in the military band, mm-hmm. awesome player, by the way. Um, and so we, we need you just to read the snare drum part for today. Um, is this the, I know what this is. This is the Nielsen, isn't it? This is the Nielsen. <laughs> I was like, read that no part. <laughs> idea. I had yeah, yeah. no idea what oh, I was sure, going yeah. to, you know, and like, I'm like, well, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll play this thing. Um, needless to say, like, and I ended up playing it actually up until the concert. Huh. Um, you know, it was like a wonderful experience, you know, but like, it also wasn't as daunting because I didn't know it was a Nielsen. Oh, sure, I was yeah. just kind of like, you're like, all right, so I have to play this loud role. I'm going to have to go to a soft role. Okay, I've got to listen to the ensemble. Okay, all right, this is a 2D figure. Got it. You know, all right, this is saying, okay, this requires this. And so I was just able to think about it very practically, yeah, you yeah. know, and it wasn't, you know, really until, um, you know, I'm, I'm studying with uh, University of Georgia yeah. and we study the Nielsen. I'm like, yeah, I've played that piece. People <laughs> like, you have? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I played that piece. Um, you know, and you know, this, and I probably shouldn't say this, but, you know, I was really hurt when, you know, cause the clarinet is like, I played it, I played it in rehearsal. We played it. We really kind of, you were able to play it together. Yeah, yeah. And, but they wanted their military band colleague to play it on the concert. Hmm. And like, I understood, you know, yeah. but I was like, you know, come on, like I've, I've put in all the work for this. Like we sound great. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, and that person gets lost on the concert. And it was a little bit gratifying. I'm like, see, I wouldn't have gotten lost. You know, we, we've already done the rehearsal. Like, you know, <laughs> nice. I was, I was still petty, you know, and it's really, yeah, yeah. you know, and then number one, that person is a fantastic player. Um, yeah. um, the parts that they did play sounded beautiful and would have been far more beautiful than what I played at the time. But um, it still was gratifying to know, like, you know, you thought I was this undergrad that couldn't hack this part. Right. And I didn't get lost, you know, <laughs> this person didn't have any rehearsals and they got lost on the concert, you know. You know, if you just, you know, had a little more faith. But. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And we'll hear more from Quentin next week. So stay tuned. This week's rave is the 2021 film Together Together, starring Ed Helms and Patty Harrison and written and directed by Nicole Beckwith, and now streaming. Prior to watching this movie, I had read, at most, the headlines for this film, many of which mentioned how funny and fun this movie was, while also discussing the fact that it plays like a romantic comedy, but it's about a completely platonic relationship, which adds to its charm and originality. Ed Helms, best known, perhaps, for playing Andy on the American version of the TV show The Office, hires Patty Harrison, 
a relatively unknown actress, best known for doing a lot of voiceover work, to be his surrogate. Ed Helms is a 40-something single man who wants to be the father of a child, and Harrison is the 20-something woman he hires to bring the child to term. One of the great things about this movie is how writer-director Beckwith paces the film and makes it pretty clear that these two are not a romantic match, even though this is how these romantic comedies typically go. But you get these two folks from different generations to create a deep friendship out of what is not technically supposed to be friendship-making situation. Helms plays the soon-to-be male single parent with the awkwardness you'd expect from someone in that role who is having to go against all of society's expectations about a single parent, i.e. that it's not a woman who's wanting this particular baby. It's a played-up awkwardness that gets more rewarding as he takes down his guard and sees Harrison as a possible and soon-to-be-close friend. Harrison is excellent, imbuing the role of 20-something single woman carrying someone else's baby to term with both an attempted detachment and the care that is involved. She carries levels of self-assurance along with terrible personal doubts about herself and the situation, which get explained through the film. The rapport between the two is fantastic. It's clear this is never intended to be a physically romantic situation, but these two develop shtick, respect, and some form of love and care for each other, particularly as they both realize the other has their back. It's a fun, cute, small film with great performances and a ton of great lines, including one from Harrison regarding a podcast. That was pretty awesome. Check out Together Together, now streaming. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Quentin Millette. Until then.